If you have your Bibles, open them up to Deuteronomy 22. We'll be reading and looking at verses 13 through 30. As we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, we, of course, have now been presenting a lot of our, spending a lot of our time looking at the Ten Commandments. And this is now the Seventh Commandment, and we have started our process of going through sort of the negative commands. The earlier commands were all very, very positive. Uh, So they were positive not in the sense that they were happy versus negative being sad, but positive in the sense of telling us what we should do versus what we shouldn't do. And you'll notice that if you go back and you read those positive commands, the positive commands are actually much larger in chapter 5. And what I mean by larger is simply longer. They take up more space. So the first commandment, the second commandment, the third commandment, and the fourth commandment take up a great number of verses. But now, even the, even the fifth commandment, honoring your father and your mother, is positive telling you what you should do, is a little bit longer than things like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. We, even in talking about those positive commandments, made the very clear emphasis that it wasn't just in keeping those, those commands weren't enough in themselves, but Moses was explaining what those commands meant. Certainly we know that there needs to be explanation then on the negative commands. We don't think that it's enough that you simply don't commit adultery. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It isn't enough just to read the letter of the law. You have to understand what it's saying, and Moses is helping us by explaining these things to us. We looked at it not only with the fifth command and the sixth command, but now especially in the seventh command. You shall not commit adultery. We know that it is more than just not committing adultery that's at stake here. Rather, What is at stake here is our entire thinking and way of life as it revolves around sex. Famously, um, back in 1631, two unfortunate gentlemen by the name of Barker and Lewis were printing a version of the King James Bible, and they missed, in the entire Bible, as far as we know, they missed three little letters. They happen to be fairly important letters, and because of that, their edition of the Bible, or their printing of the Bible, became known as the Wicked Bible, because it instructed people here in Deuteronomy to commit adultery. Instead of saying, thou shalt not commit adultery, it actually read, thou shalt commit adultery, um, which is clearly a misreading of the passage. But we know that it's more than just not committing adultery or committing adultery. There's more involved in this. There is an expansion of it. We know that there is an importance attached to sex. We see it, the pervasiveness of sex in our culture means that we could spend hours and even days talking about this topic, but we are going to restrict ourselves to just some basic fundamental things that we can actually glean from here in Deuteronomy, although it is more biblically balanced than just taking it from Deuteronomy. You were to sort of go around our culture, you could get various attitudes about what the import and meaning of sex is to people. There are some who would argue that sex is simply tied up in who you are, that who you are is what you think of and how you act out sex, that if you were to tell people that you should be celibate, that they would take this as an attack on their very nature and person, that the acting out and the expression of sexuality with other people actually is basis, the basis of what their identity is. We know that biblically that is just not true. It's just not true. 
Jesus, no doubt, as Hebrews says, was tempted in every way that we are. Certainly, we we would assume, although we have no real indications of it, it's a fairly good assumption. That means he was also tempted sexually, yet he did so without sin. He was not married, no matter what ancient inscriptions uh, people read and think say. He was never married, and so we know that it, it is not basic to our identity, basic to who we are, to act on sexual impulses. It's not that important. The same kind of people, though, would not only claim that sexual identity builds the very basis of who they are, they would also claim, seemingly out of the other side of their mouth, that it's also just a meaningless physical act. It's just something that two people engage in that is almost able to be tossed away the minute that it's done. We also know that this is not correct. Some Christians have the mistaken idea that I think is fairly disabused now, but have the mistaken idea, this has come from no one less than Augustine of all people, that sex is simply a necessary item for the propagation of the species, but nevertheless, it is sort of a fleshy, dirty thing that we ought not to engage in unless it is simply to make children. We know from reading scripture, which Augustine was very good at, but blinded in this particular area, that that is not the case, that sex is a good gift from God, that we are instructed within marriage to engage in it often. If you don't know how to read the Song of Psalms in this way, you should, because it is very important, not less 1 Corinthians 7, which is highly, highly emphatic on the goodness of sex in marriage. Sex does not determine who we are. It is not a necessary form of self-expression. But when engaged in, is tremendously powerful. And as such, it should be done only in an appropriate manner. Today we're going to look at what Deuteronomy is saying about sex specifically in chapter 22 from verses 13 through 30. Deuteronomy reads, If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of that young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate, And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity, and yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver." And give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon the virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife, and he may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So shall you purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman, because she did not cry for help 
though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so shall you purge the evil from your midst. But if the if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For in this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one there to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. This is the word of our God. The first thing that we understand from these passages is that sex unifies. Sex unifies. The unity of the sexual act is found from the very beginning of Scripture. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over the creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. Later, in Genesis 2, the explanation of what it means to be one flesh is said in Genesis 2, 23 through 25. The man said, after seeing all of the beasts portrayed before him and finding nothing there that corresponds to him, nothing that is truly a suitable helper, he says, finally, this at last, there's, a, there's an expression of joy and gratitude. And he sort of erupts. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Moses concludes that therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When it says that they shall become one flesh, there is clearly the implication that that's physically one flesh, but we know from reading the rest of scripture that it's not just a unification in flesh. It's not just a unification physically, but it's a unification in all parts of their lives. Sex is an incredibly powerful thing and it does something that no other physical act can do. When you engage in sex, when you engage in sex with somebody else, you are united to them in a way that you are united to no one else. Not just physically, but financially, spiritually, emotionally. You are connected to them psychologically in a way that you are connected to no one else. The New Testament brings us forward as strongly as anything else. Ephesians 5, in talking about the marriage of a husband and a wife, Paul makes the simple plea to husbands to love their wives, not only on the basis of their imaging Christ, but on the basis of self-love and self-worth. In verse 28, Ephesians 5, 28, Paul says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. That is, you care about the physical well-being of that woman. You care about her emotional well-being, her spiritual well-being. Why? Because she is one with you. 
Not just because you've been united physically together, but because you've been united completely together. You are unified. In 1 Corinthians 6, 16, talking about a prostitute and Christians in Corinth engaging with prostitutes, Paul writes, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now, if you think that that is only a question about physical union, Paul is asking literally the stupidest question that has ever been asked in the history of all questions, okay? You might think there are no stupid questions, but if you interpret it that way, you have discovered the stupidest question, right? Do you not know that when you join to a prostitute, you're joined to a prostitute? Jeez, I never, never considered that. That's a good point, Paul. But what does he mean? When you are joined to a prostitute, you are fully joined to her. You become one body, not two separate bodies united, but one body. You are united in all of your ways. In this sense, sex is both unique and almost magical. It takes two separate beings and it makes them one through one physical act. It unifies them together. Listen to how strongly Deuteronomy puts this in the last verse we read. A man shall not take his father's wife because it's icky and gross. True and amen. But that's not what the text says. It also doesn't say a man shall not take his mother, which is a completely different issue of incest. No, this is talking about taking a wife, your, your father's wife, who is not blood related to you, a stepmom. She's not blood related to you. Why can't you take her as your wife? She's not blood related to you. There's no issue of incest. As a matter of fact, our culture would say, truly, it's kind of odd, but it's really not problematic in the full. Deuteronomy says it's horribly problematic, and it's worse than you think it is. Because when you take your father's wife, when you take your stepmom, who is not blood related to you, it's not simply because it's icky, because she's your father's wife, but more than that, he says, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. That is, your father was so united with that woman that going in with her is going in with him. It is a full and total unity that is never split up. That is an incredibly strong verse in Deuteronomy talking about how two people are united fully in sex. It even occurs in verses 28 through 29. If a man seizes a vir- or a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, we are to assume, I think, even though that's really strong language, that this was agreed upon by both parties. This isn't an instance of rape. Because in the instance of rape, he was clearly to be stoned, but not here. If he meets her and lies with her, and they are found, the man who lay with her shall give the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. That is, you are now, because you have united with her, she is yours, you are hers, you are one flesh with her, and so you are financially obligated to take care of her. In all of this, in all of the things that we've read, Sometimes we read that and we we find such trouble in the way that ancient Near Eastern cultures and especially Hebrew people treated women, but realize the reason why he has to marry her now is not because she doesn't have a choice, but because that is her only choice. God has chosen to write the law in such a way knowing that the law will never change their hearts. The men of Israel were not, even if he said, listen, 
there is a virgin, you are to be, there's a woman who is no longer a virgin, you are to be kind to her and you are to take her so that, as your wife so that you can give her a home and you can give her love. And this is the appropriate thing to do. God knew right away that was never going to be followed. So what did he say? If you take it from her, you provide for her. You have been unified to her and you need to watch out for her because she will be destitute without it. There is a unification that happens in sex that happens in nothing else. It is not a high five. It is not a handshake. It is not a physical interaction like every other physical interaction. It is unique and it is powerful. And what is more is it teaches us very solemnly something about our unification with God. It is not for nothing that in the very beginning when it talks about men and women being made, he says they are made in God's image, male and female, he made them. The very first male and female we get then we are talked about in terms of one flesh. Now, if you want to go back and understand it in terms of the monotheism of the Old Testament, that's pretty difficult. But once you get to the Trinity, it becomes a lot more understandable. Because what is happening is two separate people are becoming one. It is a picture of God on high. It is a picture of our unity to God. It is a picture of how we image God. We've talked about how in talking about murder and in talking about authority figures, there is always the image of God imprinted on these things. And so therefore, to engage in them wrongly is to say something about God. The same thing's true here. If you are engaging in sex wrongly, you are saying something about the unity of the very Godhead itself. Because God is always one, three persons in one, always unified in everything they do. They share one will. Because that is true, when you have sex with somebody, you are unified to them in whole. Second, therefore, sex is of public interest. It is of public interest. Sex is not simply a private matter Not too long ago, our culture was huge on this. What happens in the bedroom should be in the bedroom, and it's no one's business. So you shouldn't care what a politician does behind closed doors because that politician could be perfectly good at making public laws and executing public laws for the public interest, regardless of how weird they might be in other avenues of life or how immoral they might be in other avenues of life. But it's amazing how people caught up with that. Not too long ago, in 2014, Brendan Eich, who was the CEO of Mozilla, got booted from that position because, not in 2013, not in 2012, or 11, or 10, or 9, but way back in 2008, six years earlier, he had given money to a group in California to assist Proposition 8, which was to resist gay marriage. Which, by the way, the vast majority majority of Californians agreed with at that time. But because he did that six years earlier, it was found out, somebody lobbied against him, and he got booted from his job as CEO. He was forced to resign, basically, because he had done this thing six years earlier. Never mind if his mind had changed about the thing. Listen, this... He's not just a random CEO. This is the guy who created JavaScript. So you know all those Java updater things that come up on your computer all the time? That dude created that. He was huge 
in Silicon Valley. An incredibly bright and important man in computers. Could think of hardly anyone better to lead your company forward in terms of business, but because he stood against gay marriage at some point in time in his life, they realized that he wasn't fit for his job. All of a sudden, sex is a public matter. We shouldn't lament that. In all honesty, sex is a public matter. It has always mattered how people engage in this particular issue. It always has mattered what people think of this issue. This is why, as we read through here, so many times we are told that the woman is not just to be stoned, but that the entire city is to be called together to stone those who offend in sex. So what happens? The man, if he lies about this virgin who he was betrothed to, and she is actually a virgin, he, for whatever reason, stupidly lied about it. He is to be whipped, and he is to pay a fine, but she, if she is guilty, is to be killed. Again, it seems like that isn't balanced, but let's go back and think about why it's not balanced. He is forfeiting his life for her. He is to marry her, and he is to take care of her, and he is to protect her all the days of his life. He cannot escape his responsibility to her. If they stoned him, she loses. If he's maintained alive, yes, she has to live with that horrible person, but the alternative is not good. But if she lies about it, what happens? They take her in front of her father's house, and the entire city comes together to stone her because it is a public matter. It isn't just between two people. It is about how two people image God. There is a reason why, as you go through the prophets, the vast majority, the, the major, the major metaphor for how God relates to Israel is not a God to his people, but a husband to his wife. Jeremiah speaks this way of Israel playing the prostitute, of sniffing in the air like a camel in heat. Ezekiel 16 is an incredibly moving passage about God taking in Israel, although she was beaten and left to die, taking her in and raising her up and giving her everything good and becoming her husband only to see her turn his, her back on him. Hosea, the exact same idea made really forceful there in Hosea. Isaiah picks up the same sort of themes. Time and time again, God is called the husband to Israel. How you act in private tells you something about what you think about God in public, and therefore it is always a public offense. It is always a public offense, and therefore a matter of public interest. What we are not saying is this. We are not saying that the, the United States of America ought to come together and under a theocratic understanding of what these laws say, should take it upon ourselves to punish people in accordance with the Old Testament law. We don't think that because the United States of America isn't Israel. Can't say that any stronger. America is not Israel. We are not the chosen people. We do not live under the laws of Deuteronomy. Stop thinking that way if you do. This isn't to say, however, that as the church, we do not warn people about the consequences of their actions. We warn them that there are public consequences. This causes the downfall of society. Read through the passages concerning the nature of idolatry and how it is attached to adultery time and time and time again. And adulterous people are an adulterous people, both to one another and to the Lord. You can't escape it. It is a matter of public interest. And third, because of the first two, Sex can invite violence. 
Sex can invite violence. My kids play with Legos all the time. Legos are wonderful. There is nothing that depicts human nature more than Legos because my kids can do amazing things with Legos. They build towns and they build cities and they can create in their minds these wonderful world and then they create in their minds these wonderful world and they tear them apart and they leave Legos on the ground and I step on them and I want to die and nothing tells me of their beauty and their creativity and their evilness and leaving landmines for me more than Legos, right? And if you get, you, you know the basic Lego, the two by three Lego, it's like yay thick, you know, a quarter inch to a half inch thick. Well, they make them really thin for toppers or just to annoy parents. They make them super, super thin. And if you seal the same size together, that is better than welding metal together. I kid you not, there is no way you are ever going to pull those Legos apart without a small, semi-controlled nuclear explosion. Those Legos are not coming apart. When those things are unified together, the only way you get them apart is by violence. The same way it goes with people. When two people have been unified through sex, the only way that they can ever be pulled apart, truly and fully pulled apart, is through a violent act. We're not just talking about rape here. Let's be very clear. One of the things that demonstrates most fully that sex is not just another physical act is the toll that rape takes on women. The physical toll of a a rape on a woman can get over with very, very quickly. The emotional, the personal, the psychological toll goes forever. It is an immensely, immensely violent act, probably not even seconded to murder. Notice that even in verse 26, the punishment in this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. He's raped someone, and it's like murder. He has split himself from one that he attached himself to, and because of that, because it was not only an unwarranted unification, but an unnecessary expulsion, he has done nothing less than murder her. But it's not just rape. Any unification of people and then ripping them apart causes a wave of destruction in lives. This is one of the reasons why when it is public, there is such severe penalties. Why? Why are people who commit adultery stoned? They're stoned because they are committing idolatry. When you do this without commitment, when you, when you come together simply to separate, when you take another man's wife, when you commit such heinous acts, you are splitting up two things that belong together. You are not only doing violence to another man or another woman, but you are doing violence to the very image of God. The same thing that makes murder wrong makes adultery wrong. The same thing that makes murder wrong makes fornication wrong. You cannot unify without commitment. And when you do so, By leaving, you rip apart what was meant to be always together. And so the penalty is stoning. The penalty is death. You have caused destruction. You yourself are destroyed. It is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Revelation 17. So fundamental is this idea. So fundamental is the idea Rampant sex 
is the depiction of sin. That Revelation 17 says this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was a written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. That is not a particular statement. What I mean by that is he's not pointing out a certain person and he's not pointing out a certain people. This is a summation of the world leading you astray from the gospel. It leads you astray by sex. It leads you astray by keeping you from what is good and promised and holy because God knows, God knows that there is good coming for you. That's why when he goes to the other illustration, Revelation 17, the judgment of God comes upon the prostitute, but the unification of God with his people comes as a wedding. Sex invites violence. It is bad. Listen, when scripture speaks like this, understand two very important things. It is bad for you in two ways. One, it is violent against yourself. To engage in sex outside of marriage without a commitment, is inviting, friends, it is inviting physical, emotional, and psychological pain. It invites it. There's no way around it. Scripture upholds that the unity is so tight and close between two people that by separating them out, you are asking to be hurt, and sometimes in incredibly severe and long-lasting ways. But it is also violent against the very image of God. It destroys his image, It claims that God can be divided because you carry, whether you like it or not, the image of God with you and what you do, you claim God does. And so when you engage in activities like that and separate out from it, you are yourself declaring that God can be split, that the Trinity can be broken up, that they are not unified in all ways. That is the power of sex. That is why you must handle it well. Revelation 19 Verses 1 through 9 says this. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice and a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke for her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. God will penalize sexual impurity. But, reading on, Then, in verse 6, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty peal of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with the fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Make no doubt about it. Those people, those people are not those who were pure from the beginning. Those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, those who were pure and holy before him, who had been washed white before him, needed to be washed. They were not there because they were pure and holy in and of themselves. They were there because the blood of the Lamb has cleansed them. They were there because God understands the importance of unity in calling this a marriage feast. We've been, frankly, negative today, but so is the nature of the command to us. This, as it was said in the beginning, is not only for, is not the only word on sex in the Bible. The Bible has many positive and good things to say about sex. Nevertheless, it is important to hear what scripture says, sex is an excellent thing which makes it both powerful and dangerous. Louis Slotin is probably a name you've never heard before. He's a very, very good chemist and physicist back in the 40s. <clears throat> so good was he that he was invited to work on the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos. He was working with radioactive shells and simulating a nuclear reaction with them, simulating being the important thing because he was holding the shells apart with a huge lead plate that could never be moved or a screwdriver, one of the two. And the screwdriver slipped and the two half spheres came together and it started a nuclear reaction, not boom, boom, nuclear, but a radioactive, highly radioactive reaction, so much so that people who were standing behind glass saw the two orbs glow blue. Slotin said that his hand became incredibly hot to the point of burning, and he immediately had a sour taste in his mouth. And only by his immediate actions did he prevent everyone in there, and probably a good portion of the people in Los Alamos, from dying. As a matter of fact, he was the only one who eventually succumbed to death from this not but a couple of days later. His actions in the end might have been heroic, but his actions in the beginning were foolish. He was dealing with something that was dangerous, that was powerful, that was violent, and that could kill him, and he was doing it flippantly with a screwdriver. When it is mismanaged, sex leads to a destruction of the image of God violence upon both men and women, and the unraveling of society. But there is hugely important and very indeed good news. Jesus Christ has come and died and been resurrected. In him, the sins of your past can be forgiven. God's image can be made new in you, and a new and holy kingdom has been established you do not have to anymore be defined by your sin, for he can wash it all away, and he can make you new again. Your sin does not have to be your identity. Christ can be. 
Christ not only died for your sins, but he was resurrected to give you new life, a life of purity and holiness made, of course, for him, the bridegroom. Sex, while good, is not ultimate. Rather, it points to in extremely tangible ways to that which is ultimate, our union with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel tells us of his payment for his bride, his cleansing of her, and his resurrection is the promise of his hand in marriage to keep her holy and pure forever. And it is only through this marriage that we can truly know and be unified to God in mercy, in grace, in forgiveness, and in newness. If you do not know of this gospel and you don't trust in it, do so today. And trust your life, your being, your identity, everything you are to this good news that Jesus Christ came and died to forgive sinners and to make them new again. If you have already done this, well, let us sing. For he is our bride, groom, and we are his bride, and we owe him honor and respect, for he has redeemed us from a lostness that was unimaginable, but has given us a kingdom that is imperishable. Let us pray. Father God, you are kind to us in so many ways, not least of which is that you have taken a sinful people and you have made them yours. You have taken your son and you have provided for him a bride. You have told him to go and purchase from a far land a bride that he might be unified to her in all ways. Jesus Christ prayed that we could be one as he and the Father are one and we could even be one with them. Father, that unity is spoken most fervently on the earth through our marriages. They are important. They are not a side issue in a cultural debate. Whether or not we win that cultural debate, Father, let us honor the marriage bed in our culture. Let us honor the marriage bed in our church. Let us uphold the goodness of sex, but the power and the danger of it as well. Let us be wise, but let us also keep ourselves for you, for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.